Well, we have made it to the end of the Old Testament book of Esther. And today we're going to finish up chapters 9 and 10 to bring this series to its conclusion. So this book began in a very different place than where we are now in the story. In a foreign country, Persia, at least it's foreign for the Jewish people that we're learning about, they were under the reign of a man named King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus we've seen to be an impulsive king, also a very wicked king, an easily influenced king. And we also saw his wife, whose name is Queen Vashti, display integrity and courage by buffing the king's wicked pleasures, even at great cost to herself, at least in terms of her position, which she lost. After she was discarded by the king, a vast search was undertaken to find a new queen for the king and for the empire. And a new wife, a new queen, was found, and her name was Esther. Esther was a Jewish woman who found herself in her position because of her natural beauty. And even in this, the fact that she's put in this position because of her beauty speaks to God's grace, right? Nothing that she did herself. She didn't earn that. She didn't put it on herself. This is how she was created, Esther as queen was vital because of the wicked plot of the king's right-hand man, whose name was Haman. Haman wanted to kill all Jewish people within Persia because there was one man who functioned as Esther's caretaker, her dad, whose name was Mordecai, and he refused to bow down before Haman. Now Esther found herself in this esteemed position as queen and was initially reluctant to engage in this conflict. Seeing that her people were in danger, she hesitated to engage in it. But as she realized the dire reality for all Jewish people in Persia, she eventually risked her life for them, going in front of the king when she was not invited. Ultimately, she, along with Mordecai, are able to provide protection for the Jewish people. And in a twist full of irony, Haman is killed while Mordecai is raised to an esteemed position. Haman's whole plot was to take down Mordecai to kill him. He built gallows so that Mordecai could be killed. An ironic reality is he died on those gallows he built for someone else to die on. Last week we read of how on the day the Persians were able to kill and to plunder all Jewish people, a great reversal occurred. The fear of Jewish people fell on Persia, and the Jewish people killed many thousands of Persians in self-defense. And this was the resulting deliverance that Jewish people were looking for. And now we will read what all of this leads to here at the end Of Esther. So let's read Esther, the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. 
and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. That was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the end and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray. God, thank you for maybe in many ways un, an unexciting text of Scripture. Just a lot of records being read. But in this, we still find hope, we find good news, and I pray that we would see that and hear that this morning. Ultimately, I pray that we would be led to Jesus and our faith in him would increase. So would you soften and tenderize our hearts in these moments, help us to hear the truth of the gospel, and fill us with a ton of hope. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Okay, there's not a ton for us to summarize here in these verses, but we're going to take just a little bit of time and and do that. So the section begins with Mordecai sending letters to Jewish people throughout Persia, stating that these days are to become days of celebration. Specifically, what we read is that they are to make them days of feasting and gladness. This is what the Jewish people are to do. They are to make these two days feasting 
and gladness. Now, we didn't touch on this last week, but since it's mentioned here again this week, I thought I'd point out the human tendency to fight about basically everything. The letters sent out by Mordecai resulted in those closer to the capital city of Susa receiving them earlier than those who lived out in rural parts of Persia. So what happened then is a dispute arose as to when this celebration should be observed. The city folk said the 14th, because that's when they were getting the letters. But the rural folk, those out in the sticks, the hicks, they thought that it should be celebrated on the 15th, because that's when they were receiving letters, because it took time for the horses to get out to those many different miles and regions of Persia. And, and isn't this how we oftentimes operate in our own lives? We want to ensure that we're right or that we get our way or that we stand out in some way. And so we end up fighting about really ridiculous things and basically everything at times. The way that Mordecai interacts with this provides a beautiful picture of God's grace, I think. What he says is he tells them to celebrate on both days. So he doesn't say one of them's right and one of them's wrong. He he doesn't scold them. Why are you guys doing this? He just shows them double the kindness, right? And he says double the celebration. Celebrate on both days. And it's almost this picture of what we get through Jesus in the New Testament, this idea of grace upon grace. It's a picture of what we get here and how this conflict is being resolved. Now, right after this in the verses that we're looking at today, there's this recounting of what happened in the story of Esther with a pointed emphasis on the idea of Pur and Purim. This is talking about the institution of the Feast of Purim. And many commentators have stated that the whole point of the book of Esther is for the Jewish people to adopt this feast. For this feast to be instituted within the life of Israel. Almost as a way to bring them back to the law. Right? You need to do this year after year. We're going to explore the Feast of Purim a little bit more uh, in just a bit. So the book ends with a few comments then on the greatness of Ahasuerus, but then also how this corresponded to a high rank and position that Mordecai was able to ascend to and what this meant for Mordecai and for the Jewish people. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Feast of Purim, as an, but as an introduction to that, I want to comment on the aspect of its institution that is emphasized in these verses. I want to go back and I read, want to read two verses here for us. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. (coughs) Peyton, would you bring me my water? Sorry. (laughs) Um, So it becomes really clear in this section 
that this is a feast that is never to cease. Thank you so much. This is supposed to be celebrated by all Jewish people in every generation of every year. On and on and on. It's repeated. So why, why is this? Well, this story is a story of powerful deliverance. What's happening in Esther. And this should draw the gaze of the Jewish people back to their core identity. They are the people of a powerful God who loves them. Who loves them deeply and sacrificially. Who does not leave them. Who provides for them. And who rescues them. And these people need to be regularly reminded of this reality. To celebrate this fact. Not just solemnly acknowledge it, but to celebrate this reality. For anyone who is a Christian, this needs to be our practice also. We need to regularly remind ourselves of how God has delivered us, or is delivering us in our current day, how he has been faithful to us. And this is why I encourage us to make it a practice to share our stories of Jesus' kindness with one another and also with non-Christians as well. When we share our stories, we're reminded of how grace has shown up in our lives. And we need this because we easily forget over and over. And we should find ways to meaningfully celebrate God's kindness in our own lives. In our house, the Osell family, we have one of these celebrations upcoming that happens every year. On October 12th, 2017, we watched our oldest child, who at the time was nine years old, experience bleeding on his brain from an injury. And each year, I'm taken back to the ICU doctor awkwardly sitting on the floor with his legs crossed and struggling to say words every parent fears to hear. This idea that they didn't know what was going to happen with our child, if he would make it through the night, if they would have to open up his brain, as he was trying to prepare us for the worst. Every year I go back to the drive I made after that conversation from Children's Hospital to Fridley in the middle of the night to bring our children home to their own beds. And I'm reminded of the heaving sobs that I encountered on that drive and the gut-wrenching despair of what the doctor had just told us. And I feel what I felt in that moment every year, the undoneness of that moment. Now, I don't walk through that every year as a way to try and guilt myself into tritely thinking, oh, God is good. That's not why I do that. That, that was my lived experience. I can't undo those experiences. They're etched into me. And when I slow down and think about this circumstances, situation that we walk through as a family. My complete helplessness in that circumstance reminds me of my utter need for Jesus, both physically and spiritually. I have a need for Jesus. And it's this reality that leads 
to celebration for us. God God saw fit to spare Tyler's life and spare us untold grief. And so we clear the calendar every October 12th, and we celebrate God's kindness as seen in and through the life of Tyler. So we're going to play well together that day, probably going to serve in some capacity, and we're going to eat well as a family, which probably means like nice fast food for our family, but we're going to eat well also. The reason that we do this is because God changed our mourning into dancing. We didn't do anything to deserve that, but that's what occurred. This is what God has done. And so we take time to remember what occurred that October 12th and and the weeks following that as well. We remember and we celebrate I did. Okay. Us to be able to have these kinds of markers in our life, to remember God's faithfulness and his kindness to us. All right, I want to talk a little bit about the Feast of Purim and what this means to the Jewish people. From what we read in Esther, the Feast of Purim was instituted to remember the great deliverance that occurred for the Jewish people in the land of Persia. Biblically, this is not uncommon. When God delivered his people out of Egypt, he instructed them to invoke an annual observance that was known as Passover. God intentionally drove these stakes in the ground through the life of Israel to remind his people of his great power. And so that they'd remember him as a God who delivers, a God who saves. God was essentially holding the hand of his people, knowing they needed help remembering him. And yet, they still repeatedly forgot. Purim is still celebrated within Israel today. We've talked throughout this series about how in the book of Esther, God's never mentioned. And so it's not surprising that of all the feasts, all the holidays, that the Feast of Purim is actually the most secular of holidays. There's not a lot that's celebrated as it pertains to God. But the story of Esther is read publicly as they celebrate this still in Israel today. But there's more of an emphasis put on blotting out the name of Haman than there is on raising up or praising the name of God. So, What happens when this story is read publicly is children are given these little rattles, okay? And when they come to the name of Haman, the children shake these rattles so that his name can't be heard. People can't hear his name. And that's part of how they celebrate this story publicly still to this day in Israel. Now for us today, we might read the story of Esther and think that chance for us Yeah, you guys can swap that out. And and think that it's a great chance for us to be reminded of God's goodness. But that is largely not what this feast is about today. So the ESV Study Bible says that this is the amazing survival of the Jewish people for thousands of years in spite of persecution and hardship. Do you hear that? 
Look at these people. Look at what they have done. Look at their impressive endurance, how they've persevered through all of these things. Look at them. Marvel at them. As we consider this, it should cause us to really wrestle wrestle with why this or any other celebration is occurring in our own lives. Are we increasingly focused on ourselves, on our greatness, on what we have or someone else has accomplished? Are we impressed with ourselves or are we impressed with Jesus, with his grace, with his kindness to us? It might feel really good to be celebrated. It may feel really affirming to be the center of attention and lauded for something impressive we have done. But let's consider why this is not good news at the end of the day. When someone is celebrated, when someone is lauded, when someone is noticed for their performance, what comes after the celebration? Expectations. That's what comes after it, right? expectations. So you think about, get a big promotion at work, right? And the paycheck goes way up. Employer typically doesn't think or care about family. They want the work to get done. And there's oftentimes a cost for that work to get done, to live up to those expectations, Expectations mean we have a burden to bear, a weight to carry, a law to keep. And this may all be well and good when we're strong and healthy and capable. But what happens when we are emotionally overwhelmed or physically frail? What happens when the expectations are too much? A day will come when it's all too much. And if we have built our lives seeking out to save ourselves or making ourselves competent or to be enough, what will we do when we realize we no longer have what it takes to be enough or to save ourselves? We will crumble. We will despair. We will lose hope. We'll see what we were never able to see before that it was a facade, and that we need help. If it's up to us, if our lives are lived in such a way we're seeking to be the center of the celebration, we will eventually, ultimately, be disappointed. But the beautiful reality of the gospel is this is exactly where Jesus oftentimes meets us. It's not in our strength that Jesus is seen as good, but typically in our weakness. It's in those moments that we typically see the clearest. We can typically see more clearly at a funeral than we can at a birthday party. We can typically see more clearly when we're in a hospital room rather than sitting in a movie theater. This is just how things are. And Jesus' kindness and his gentleness towards us is incomparable. And we get a glimpse of this in Mordecai here at the end of Esther 10. We read about Mordecai, but ultimately we can read this about Jesus. This is what we read at the end of the book of Esther, how how the whole book ends. It says, Mordecai sought the welfare of his people 
and spoke peace to all his people. In the lowest point for the Jewish people in this story, Mordecai was on his knees, pleading, crying for God's help. In the lowest point of any of our lives, Jesus has demonstrated his understanding of that spot by lowering himself to the point of death. Jesus is concerned about your welfare. Jesus, the one who possesses all power and authority, is speaking peace to you. Even right now, he speaks peace to you. And the hope, the intention by God in this is that we would be comforted by who Jesus is and what he has said to us. He wants us to be filled with peace. And so he says to the burned out and to the stressed out and to the strung out and to the freaked out and to those of you who are out of steam, as as Brett read earlier in our service, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. That's where we find rest. That's where we find peace in Jesus. And so this is our point of gospel application today. We end our sermons reminding us not what we need to do. It's not the point of the Christian life of what we have to do, but what Jesus has already done for us. So we want to remind ourselves who Jesus is and what he has done. And so Jesus is seeking your welfare and speaking peace to you. Okay, so I know this to be true. I believe this to be true. But if I'm honest, there's plenty of days where I don't feel this. Because of cancer, because of political discord, because of my own sin, I don't always feel this. But see... This is exactly why Jesus speaks peace. Because we are surrounded by conflict. Because we feel the lack of peace all around us. He seeks our welfare because he's walked on this earth. And he knows that this world is marked by people seeking their own welfare. And seeking their own welfare to the detriment of others. To your detriment. But this is not who Jesus is, and this is not how Jesus operates. Jesus offered up his welfare for yours. Jesus entered into conflict, into our conflicts, conflicts that we've created as well, so that we might have peace. The Bible talks about the peace that flows from Jesus and how it surpasses our understanding, how it doesn't make sense at times because it's so good. And there is a sense of mystery in this, that it doesn't make sense, but the peace of Jesus boggles minds because it pervades our hearts at any time and in any situation. It comes to us when it doesn't make sense, when it shouldn't be there. I don't want to say that tritely. Like, you might be going through really hard things, really heavy things. 
And I know some of us are. So I don't just throw this at us tritely. I've been in situations where peace seemed absent on that drive from Children's Hospital to my home in Fridley. Plenty of you are walking through situations in life where you feel this acutely right now. The story in Esther is intended to be helpful in this regard. Notice this piece that Mordecai is speaking is being spoken in a foreign land. When we find ourselves in places that seem foreign, where we feel out of place, where things seem wrong, Jesus speaks peace into those places, into foreign lands. Peace is also spoken into dire circumstances. Mordecai considered himself and his people as good as dead. And yet, hope, peace, was spoken into those dire circumstances, into the face of death. Peace is experienced unexpectedly. Peace is spoken into hopelessness. So, Center Church, let's believe in the Jesus that speaks this peace. And let's be a people that boggles the mind of others with our lives full of peace. Not because we're strong, not because we're, we're champions in terms of like religious activity. This isn't something we manufacture in ourselves. We can be this because we're trusting in the Prince of Peace. We're trusting in the one who conveys peace to us, who fills us with peace when it makes no sense to us and to those around us. But this is the promise of Jesus, to give us peace that surpasses our understanding, that doesn't make sense, that calms us in the midst of horrific realities.